0: Welcome along to another coronavirus update podcast. I'm Marcus Stead and as usual I'm joined by veteran campaigner and blogger Greg Lance Watkins. There's lots to discuss in the next hour or so. Much has been made in the media of the news in the last 24 hours or so that the UK's death toll is much higher than Italy's. We are a similarly shaped country with a similar-ish population but as we're about to discuss the figures were compiled in very different ways. We also look into what the easing of restrictions in Spain, Italy and Germany and Austria really means and how their lockdown measures compare to those in the UK. Germany has announced plans to resume the Bundesliga football. Both Greg and I agree this is completely crazy and is fought with risk. It really isn't worth it. We go on to discuss what the new reality is for restaurants, pubs and cafes as they open with much reduced capacity when the lockdown is eased in Britain, and that is likely to be still some time away. On Sunday, Prime Minister Boris Johnson is going to address the nation and announce his plans for handling the next phase of the pandemic. We discuss what that is likely to entail. And finally, we look into whether changes we're seeing with more people working from home will become a more permanent fixture. Will companies need as much office space going into the future? This is going to be a fascinating hour or so. Do stay with us. Well, Greg, there's been a lot of talk in the last few days about how the UK's death toll is higher than Italy's. We are a similar-shaped country in many ways, with a similar-ish sort of population. However, I'm a bit reluctant to read too much into this because the way in which the British government and the Italian government correlates figures are two very different things. So, I don't think we should read too much into that particular aspect of it one way or the other. Your thoughts on that first of all
1: well, Italy doesn't record deaths that occur at home mm. It doesn't record deaths in um other than in hospital. It's not recording deaths with any degree of accuracy except in the northern part of Italy mm. and France likewise doesn't record deaths at home. They're both only recording pre-proven Covid-19 deaths. They're also in Germany, the same as Germany, doing the same thing. And we are not recording, uh, sorry, we are recording only deaths from COVID-19. Whereas they're recording deaths of COVID-19, i.e., people who've got it, but have actually died of something completely different. One instance was somebody who is terminal cancer and in hospital, in hospice, sorry, uh, with terminal cancer waiting to die, uh, there, there was um, Covid in the hospital, in the, correction again, hospice, and they had Covid. Well, they were going to die anyway.
0: So with this in mind then, I, I agree with what you're saying, but the basic point here is every country has their own way of recording figures. And therefore, making like-with-like like comparisons between countries is very, very difficult. However, this, this figure, which has been quoted in the press a lot about how the UK death toll is now higher than Italy's, and we've seen how disreputable journalists and broadcasters, particularly people like James O'Brien, have been milking that stat for all it was worth. James O'Brien on his LBC show was ju- pretty much jumping up and down with glee the way he was gloating about it the other day. I thought it was disgraceful, actually. But... Another Piers Morgan. Well, he's a a lot worse than Piers Morgan, James O'Brien. I think Piers Morgan is just a man who has lost his way for the time being. James O'Brien has a disreputable track record going back some years, but I don't want to go off on that particular tangent just now. What I would say is that I think we in the United Kingdom ought to focus on a different sort of question, and that question is, if it was not for the lockdown and if it was not for what we have been through in the last six weeks, how much worse would the figures have been? And with that in mind, it's like, for example, you don't take out an insurance policy on your house or whatever and say, oh, my house, my car didn't burn down. No, that was 300 quid a year wasted, wasn't it? No, it was a good precautionary measure. Now, insofar as this lockdown has meant that the NHS has not been overwhelmed and the NHS has been able to cope and the Nightingale hospitals have not been used to any enormous degree, you have to say, I think, that this lockdown has been a successful, and before I let you back in, people talk about the Swedish approach, and we've talked about it in previous podcasts. Now, the Swedish approach, it's not as if Sweden was doing nothing, by the way. There were quite significant restrictions in, uh, for example, restaurants where there was a great deal of social spacing, and you were served at the table rather than at the bar. There were various restrictions in Sweden. However, if you look at the comparable countries to Sweden, namely their neighboring countries, Denmark and Norway, the Swedish deaths per 100,000 is about three times higher. So I don't think the Swedish model is one worth following. However, I'd like you to address the point I just made before we went off on that slight tangent, and that is that in the United Kingdom, I have to say that it does appear as though the lockdown has had the desired effect of keeping demand at such a level that the NHS can cope, which is what it was about all along.
1: I think they've played, you know, I think they've played a stormer in when you think that there was no blueprint, there was no one alive with experience of a pan, um, a global pandemic, and no one really understood the Spanish flu at the end of the First World War, which interestingly is believed to have started in a field hospital in Northern France, and American troops went back to America from the hospital carrying it, spread it in a facility, a training facility in at uh, Kansas, and it was re-imported into Europe in the same area and spread around as a result of American troops. Bear in mind that uh, although we only had somewhere in the region of two hundred and sixty thousand people die of Spanish flu, America had somewhere in the region of six hundred and something thousand people die of it. Hmm. And worldwide, between 1917 when it was first, the first outbreaks, and 1919, the spring of 1919 when it started to die out, the estimated deaths were between 50 and 100 million worldwide. The Spaniards came out of it with a very poor deal when you, <laughs> when you start st- studying it. They had nothing to do with it. What happened was none of the countries in Europe publicized the details because we were up to our neck in a war until well into 1918. In fact, uh, the 8th of May 1918, and immediately after the end of the war, there were countries that had uh, situations, sorry, I confused that date, with VE Day in the Second World War. Yeah, I Uh, thought
0: that was a bit of a coincidence, but yeah, carry on.
1: Yeah, it it was November 1918, November the 11th, wasn't it, Armistice Day? Hmm. And um, sorry to confuse everybody on that, I'm very easily confused myself when it comes to dates. Uh, The peoples in various countries in Europe were in a situation of being very close to or actually in a situation of starvation. In many areas, particularly Germany, Uh, where many of their cities had been overrun and destroyed their infrastructure had broken down completely and they had huge quantities of people refugees and um, people released from uh, prison camps and the death camps who were going back to their countries of origin or their region of origin in Germany. There were huge numbers of people on the move, not least of which was troops coming home to their countries from the the front lines. So nobody was very keen on having more bad news. This was party time. We had liberated Europe from military control of a central union of Europe. And nobody was reporting this pandemic that was going on and that everyone was living through. Nobody really noticed it because although literally millions of people were dying, well, yeah that's what people have been doing for uh, four years and the reason it got the name spanish flu was spain was only marginally involved in the war i.e giving the germans a test bed to use their weapons um, particularly their aircraft um, as part of war procedures and they recorded and reported this flu pandemic because they reported it they got blamed for it it was called spanish flu but nobody is alive who had actually experienced a pandemic so our government's response i think has been excellent i have two major criticisms one has been the various opposition parties trying to make political capital out of the difficulty and two the rather lame press conferences which i personally think should be an individual being interviewed by a competent mature interviewer well look there this is really this is this, in the country
0: this is this is something i put on social media earlier today um i watched today's i don't i'll be straight with people i don't tend to watch these 5pm press briefings religiously anymore if i happen to be around and in front of the television at that time of day i'll put it on it's not something i'll go out of my way to watch because i don't think we learn very much what we witnessed this evening At the 5pm press briefing was that a lot of local newspaper journalists were given a lot of time to ask questions this evening and it went on for the best part of an hour and what they were effectively doing is asking very parochial questions and advertising using it as an advert for their own newspaper their own local newspaper most of which will not exist in 10 years time so i do question the value of these 5pm daily press briefings what we see on many days is this sort of silly game of one-upmanship where we'll go to Robert Peston, we'll go to Laura Koonsberg, we'll go to Beth Rigby, and they're trying to go for the sort of, what I would call the gotcha moment. And a lot of, not just them, it's not confined to those three, I'm not singling them out particularly, there are a lot of lobby journalists in the, the modern lobby who are exactly the same. And I don't want to get off on too much of a tangent about the decline of the lobby journalists, but really it went downhill from the Alistair Campbell era onwards in the early days of the Blair government, where it started to become a little bit like, I mean, I I work a lot in sports journalism. I've seen this sort of thing happen a lot, where you go to a press conference uh, associated with any given football club, you fall foul of the manager. He not only tries to ban you from press conferences, he doesn't give you access to his players. And that's the sort of culture Alistair Campbell created. And here we are more than 20 years later, we've got a sort of supine lobby journalist culture. They're not interrogative enough but on the other hand what they are doing is they're sort of going for this sort of gotcha moment they're trying to they're not trying to learn anything they're trying to trip the government up and they're trying to get shots also of themselves looking inquisitive so then looking tough on the evening news bulletins what i think we would benefit from is getting rid of these 5pm
1: daily press conferences and instead get rid of those of journalists too they don't know their job
0: this is what i think we should be doing instead and this is what i put on twitter earlier on is once a week Either the Prime Minister, the England Health Secretary, Matt Hancock, or somebody else senior is interrogated in depth by either Andrew Neil, Nick Ferrari, or Eddie Mayer. And I may have inadvertently missed out one or two other competent enough interviewers, but I don't think I've missed out, maybe Mike Graham at Talk Radio as well. I don't think I've missed out many who can interview them in depth about asking Yes, hold them to account because that is your job as a journalist, but actually try and learn something about where we are and where we are heading. And I'm afraid I just don't think we get that at the 5pm daily press briefings.
1: I think the journalists should not so much be holding people to account, but getting them to account for why they're doing this, that or the other. That is not holding them to account, which sounds accusatory, It's not their job to make our politicians look like idiots. It's to bring out that they may be idiots, but not set out with a pre-printed agenda based on their particular political bias.
0: And the very odd thing we've got at the moment is that Britain's best interrogator, Andrew Neil, we are seeing virtually none of him at the moment. He has been pushed to one side completely by the BBC, it seems to me
1: well i think mainly because they have no one else to follow him mm. and they're desperately trying to drum up somebody with some competence and there is no sign of a competent journalist laura koonsberg is atrocious beth mm. Rigsby is utterly amateur she's almost as crass as k Be- burley um and who is there?
0: Well, I think back to when I was a very, very young child. I can just about remember the days when John Cole was the BBC's political editor. For those of you who don't remember him, he was this very popular, outgoing Ulsterman with glasses, with a very distinctive voice. Yeah, that way it, they used to take the mickey out of him. Didn't they? that word Undoubtedly, he used to say, undoubtedly like that. Now, he was a good interviewer and a good explainer of things. When uh, we move on into the 1990s, with like uh, Robin Oakley and Michael Brunson at ITN. Um, And then, okay, Andrew Marr. I've got mixed views on Andrew Marr. I think Andrew Marr, I think he's very bright and he's very well informed. But I think his two big talents are, point one, his ability to explain some quite complex things in in a very clear and straightforward way. And point two, I think the documentaries he makes are very good. Um, And as such, in the late 90s, early 2000s, he was quite an effective BBC political editor. I'm less keen on him on the Sunday morning interview program he now does because I think he has a tendency to interview politicians as though he's one of them rather than as a voter. That's how I would analyze that situation. But yeah, I do agree with you, whether it's Laura Koonsberg at the BBC as their political editor, Robert Peston on ITV as their political editor. Oh God, he's awful. Yeah, or Beth Rigby at Sky as their political editor. I'm afraid I don't put these people in the same category as John Cole, Michael Brunson, um, even Andrew Marr. I don't put them in the same category as that. So yes, I do think there has been a significant decline. and I don't think we are, get, we are getting the sort of facts and analysis that we really need at the moment. But, so I think we're both you and I are in agreement about the, the lack of value of the 5 p.m. daily briefing and the need for a different approach there.
1: Let well, we go about, back, for a moment to what are there is another mistake that i believe the government has made mm. and it comes in two parts i think they made a mistake by their excellent effort to build the nightingale hospitals i think they built the wrong thing in the wrong place with the best of intentions. Mm. They should have turned round to local government and said, we want isolated hospitals in every community to deal with COVID. And since local government owns the leisure centers and the schools, or has command of them, we are taking over the leisure centres until this is over and converting them to hospitals. That would have made the facilities of an ergonomic dimension, i.e., fit for humans, not 4,000 people in. A potential dying factory mm. and not four thousand patients in one location in the center of a conurbation, where there was going to be extreme difficulty for the huge amount of staff from cookers, cook correction cooks, cleaners, nurses assistants, paramedics, ambulance drivers, doctors, consultants and management. There would have been thousands of staff all having to find their way through cities to get to this facility. Many of them would have been drafted in. They would have needed a police force with a facility that large, I think it was a very good idea, but they got it wrong.
0: Yeah, and, and that is that understand. is something. Yeah, that is, that is something that perhaps they can learn from in time. But what, what is noticeable so far, at least is the extent to which the Nightingale Hospitals in England and indeed the Dragon's Heart Hospital in Wales have not been needed to anything like the extent they thought they would well, be that.
1: That was part of the mistake.
0: Well, uh, that is in also an opinion, indication, it is it not? So. Is that not an indication that the lockdown strategy has at least, in part, been successful?
1: Uh, it is also, in part, an indication that we have been using our hospitals and using the Nightingale facilities as an overspill when the hospital couldn't cope. Hmm. What we should have done is we should have used the Nightingale facilities for COVID-19. And left hospitals to 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 what they would normally do. Separate from the hospitals on the basis that Hospitals are places for people who are unwell and the last thing you want to do is to introduce a pandemic into a hospital where there are lots of vulnerable people. Yes. A friend of mine's next door neighbour who has had a long-term kidney problem had to go into hospital after... Nearly three months of lockdown for the kidney problem. Hmm. She had been in touch with nobody. Within five days of being in hospital for her kidney problem, she had caught COVID 19 in the hospital. Hmm. And there is very, as as we speak, there is very little probability of her leaving hospital ever.
0: Well that is grim news and I think again you've highlighted something there that may have been one of the key mistakes of the government strategy but it's not one that gets talked about very much. But I want to move it's the discussion reporting. on now to the, to the situation.
1: Reporting.
0: I'm going to want, I want to move the discussion on now to the situation in terms of other countries that have eased their restrictions. And I want to be very very clear about something and And not enough emphasis is placed on this. What you are seeing in Italy and Spain at the moment, the so-called easing, is actually what the UK lockdown has looked like all along, if not more severe. So this slight easing off in Spain, I would argue the restrictions there are stronger than they ever were in the UK. Now, by that I mean, I may have got the order of this wrong, but the basic principle of it is correct, You are now allowed, if you are of uh, normal adult age, you are allowed out between 10 and midday. If you are elderly, you are allowed out between midday and 2 p.m. If you are a child or a young adult, you're allowed out between uh, 2 p.m. and 4 p.m. The rest of the time you are expected to be indoors unless you are going out for food or to the pharmacy. Now, that is more severe than it ever was in the UK, and Italy, it's a slightly different setup there, but the same principle applies. There was talk today as well about Austria, where they were saying, ah, Austria eased its restrictions three weeks ago, and um, there's been no noticeable uh, spike in cases. Well, hang on a minute. What actually happened in Austria three weeks ago is that hardware and garden centers were allowed to open with severe social distancing restrictions. Um, And larger stores beyond that were only allowed to open last weekend. So with that in mind, I think it is too soon to say that Austria, even though they are still acting very cautiously, the only real restrictions were left last weekend. We will not know for several weeks yet what the consequence of that
1: will be. Well, I agree with you entirely. Our lockdown uh, was, in fact, very well managed. Uh, It's been abused by some people who have selfishly and stupidly exposed themselves and others uh, with their actions. Mm. I know, for instance, of uh, some people local to me, um, friends of mine, who on VE Day have decided they're going to have a barbecue. Well, they shouldn't. And they're inviting 10 friends. Well, they shouldn't. Which is and, totally irresponsible.
0: And have you told them this?
1: Uh, I have, without being strident about it, uh, made it very clear.
0: Yes, because what you could potentially end up with there is 10 potential carriers, if one person there has been infected, 10 potential carriers who in turn take it into their own homes. That is a pretty outrageous I thing. Not
1: if they take it into their own homes. I just don't want them anywhere near me thank you yeah but (laughs) anyone who is totally innocent of this
0: well yeah namely people in their own homes who won't be at the barbecue uh, and it could expand from there quite easily so it, it is it is an irresponsible thing to do and i i said we talked last week how i thought people were getting a little bit lax I had an incident when I was in a well-known supermarket the day before yesterday, and there was a guy on security at the front door, but there was no queue to get in, so in I went. There was a table straight in front of me with a pile of baskets. I picked up the disinfectant, sprayed it into the paper towel, started wiping the handle. Next thing I know, a woman is walking, and I've crouched down to wipe my basket. A woman is walking in front of me, plonked the basket on the table, picks up a bottle of disinfectant, sprays it in my eye line. Apologizes to me for spraying it in my eye I Said no, I didn't mean to do that. And I said, never mind that. You are inches away from my face. What happened to social distancing here? So I gave her a bit of a telling off for that. A couple of minutes later, I'm in an aisle. I see her again, coming towards me. She's got a mask over her face. So the logic and the thought process of people is gone to pieces. It's like also there was some controversy today. ITV have been continuing to run this morning, the, the light entertainment chat show and features programme, which has run for donkey's years, um, with the main presenters, uh, it was now Holly Willoughby and Philip Schofield, sat well apart. They had a cookery feature on this morning, uh, this morning's programme, that is, and they, their faces were inches away from each other. And I, I think Philip had to remind Holly, you know, we are meant to be socially distancing here. People are not thinking and people are becoming a little bit lax, I think.
1: Oh, I agree. Um, And this is going to come back to bite them uh, in the form of a second wave of the disease. And I think it's almost inevitable.
0: Well, I think so. I mean, we've seen now the example in Germany where, again, in their own way, they've eased off a little bit. And I have no problems with the actual restrictions that exist on German life at the moment. Um, That's not so much what's concerning me right now. What is concerning me is what's going on with the, um, the their talk of bringing back Bundesliga football in the very near future. Well, they're saying there now, I think the restrictions they're having in place are that um, you're going to have to be uh, quarantined for a certain period of time. Both sets of players are going to have to be quarantined and there already are consequences for those who aren't uh, adhering to social distancing. I think one player has been fined for shaking the hand of a teammate in a social media video And in a German second-tier club, one of their players has tested positive for uh, COVID-19. So, stuff is going on. But they're they're saying they're aiming to resume the Bundesliga in two to three weeks' time. But to me, the danger is going to become where you're going to have, I I don't know, it it could be a player, a manager, a coach, a physio, a referee, a linesman. Any one of those people could become injured, uh, so could become ill with COVID-19. And they could be on a corporate manslaughter charge, I think. And the other thing is, how can you say to the people of Germany or in the the medium term, the people of this country, if Premier League football went the same way, you must keep two metres apart at all time. When you've got players rolling around on the floor, there's spit, there's saliva going everywhere. Inevitably, you're going to become a lot closer than two metres. Look, we can live without football for as long as it takes. Do not take stupid risks. I have no problem with the German strategy far as the social distancing on public transport and when you're in department stores, which have reopened in the last few days. That's a matter for the government, and I can see the way they've gone about that does make a certain degree of sense to me. But resuming football, I think, is total and utter lunacy.
1: Total and utter irresponsibility. Hmm. Not just lunacy, um, because... It's not putting at risk the people who are making the decision. It's putting at risk the people, those people making the decision are supposed to be serving, Mm. not killing. Mm. Sorry, I, I have fairly strong thoughts on this. I foresee this going on for, I think we will still have elements of lockdown At least until this time next year. Mm. I don't think there is the slightest prayer of a vaccine within 18 months, and we may not even get one then. We already know that there are somewhere between 15 and 20 different sports of this particular type of disease this specific virus seems to be fractionalized into a further 15 to 20 different viruses.
0: So to be clear then about, I think we are in agreement on this. Now, to clarify, I'm much more into football and rugby than Greg is. I'll make that clear, but it's not really a relevant point to this discussion. The point is here, I, again, the former Crystal Paris. Crystal Palace chairman Simon Jordan was on TalkSport Radio the other day, and he actually made the point, he said, look, you are looking at a potential corporate manslaughter charge. You just imagine now, whether it's in Germany or in this country, just one person becomes ill, just one. The whole premise of them being allowed to resume will look utterly ludicrous, stupid, and dangerous. And then how can you say it's okay, okay, yes, I know there's a certain amount of testing going on, blah, blah, blah. I just went through all that. But how can you say to professionals, you, you, you can play football and, and take that risk and what have you, and yet say to a group of kids, you can't kick a football around in a local park. It should be wrong, wrong, wrong for everyone until we are out of this situation. You continue to adhere to social distancing, no matter who you are. And I'm afraid if that means we have to go a year, even two years without football and rugby, that is a price I and frankly everyone should be prepared to pay.
1: I don't see it as wildly different to the fact that a government spokesman has told everybody he must be they must be in lockdown, meanwhile having regular visits from his married mistress.
0: Uh, Yes, Mr. Ferguson you're talking
1: about. Neil Ferguson. Yeah, yeah. Um, This is as crass as the concept uh, and as irresponsible as the concept of trying to reintroduce football until not only have we lifted the lockdown in very gentle stages, but we have proved beyond doubt that we are out the other side of this particular pandemic we are still in a position where it could go completely pear-shaped we could have one and a half to two million people die of covid 19 in britain and 100 million die of it around the world.
0: Yeah, they, these are very, very big figures, and I can see why you're saying that. Obviously, I don't want to alarm people too much on this, but it does I go... Do. Well, no, I, 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 don't, sure. I can't be alarmist. You, know, you, mustn't be, you mustn't frighten people unnecessarily, but at the same time, remind them of the importance of why we are doing what we're doing with
1: social distancing. Marcus, I don't think it's unnecessarily. 50 to 100 million people died of spanish flu mm-hmm. we have the exact same potential with this pernicious disease which unlike flu does not appear to be affected by weather and does not show any signs that it will die out when we get better weather We've had lovely weather. Well, you want something more concrete.
0: You want something more concrete to compare it to. If weather was the factor and and sunny, hot sunny days were the cure, why is Singapore in
1: lockdown? Exactly. Hmm.
0: Yeah, that that point I, I do agree with you on.
1: I think we must, must act on the basis of planning and acting with the worst possible scenario as the potential, and then being ecstatically pleased if it doesn't happen.
0: Yeah, but what you'll end up with is, you'll end up with the Peter Hitchens argument that, uh, oh, we, we, we took all these unnecessary steps, we crashed the economy and it was for nothing. Whereas I take the opposite approach to go where I began on this podcast, when I said it's like taking out an insurance policy You don't think, oh, damn, that was a waste of money. My house didn't burn down. Why did I pay £300 this year on house insurance? No, that's putting the cart before the horse, thinking like that. You've got to put the horse before the cart. You take the precaution and hope you don't need to use it. However, let's go back to Germany just for a brief moment. Then I want to talk about the economy a little bit. But let's go back to Germany for a brief moment. There's been this very slight easing off uh, insofar as department stores opening up and so forth the football one is the one that really concerns me in Germany. Do you think it's likely with the, the sort of restrictions that have been eased in Germany in, in recent days that we are about three weeks away from another spike in cases there? What do you reckon? How do you think that's going to pan out?
1: I think that's a probability, not a possibility. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I really do. I, I am I am very prepared for this to continue. Mm. And when they lift this um, lockdown, I, for one, will continue being playing safe for at least a couple of months. Mm. I will restrict going out Mm. to a great degree, and I will make sure that I'm only going to venues where I can be a reasonable distance from people.
0: What do you think is going to happen this coming Sunday with Boris Johnson addressing the nation, announcing the next stage? Because I think the restrictions he's going to lift are going to be very, very mild. Um, We've seen in Scotland, Nicola Sturgeon has confirmed that the lockdown continues in Scotland for the next three weeks. I can't see the nations of the UK diverging in many divulging or diverging in any major way, I think what the Prime Minister will announce to the nation on Sunday will be fairly minor. He may allow things like family picnics in the open air, that sort of thing, but I don't think it's going to go much beyond that.
1: I think you will probably find that you are permitted to nominate certain family members that become part of your inner circle in terms of responsibility because there are many grandparents who are living in isolation who would be benefit hugely from seeing their children and their grandchildren Mm. yes there would be a risk but i think that acting intelligently that can be managed so you're expecting no.
0: I, I don't even think it'll go quite as far as that myself on Sunday. I think there will be, uh, like I say, family picnics will be permitted. You may be permitted to sit on a park bench, that sort of thing. I don't think it's going to go much beyond that. And I think this will be a very, very mild lifting of the lockdown. That's my instinct. But this I brings hope
1: me, you're right.
0: Yeah, this brings me on to where I, I want to go next with this discussion, and that is to the economy and. Uh, I, I don't like the cliche, the new normal, because it isn't normal. For example, if we reach a stage in the medium term where, for example, restaurants are allowed to open with social distancing, now I, I've done a bit of waitering work myself in the distant past. I know a little bit about how this sort of thing works. And what you could end up with is, like, for, for example, a typical restaurant. Let's say it's a small restaurant. There are 20 tables there normally. On a Friday and Saturday night, in particular to make a good, and that's when you make the bulk of your profit, that's when it gets really busy. You would need a six o'clock sitting, lots of people arriving at six o'clock, the restaurant near enough full. You then want them to leave some point after eight o'clock, and then a second sitting comes in, Them to leave sometime after 10 o'clock. That's when you make a profit. You expect it to be fairly quiet. You may not even open at all on a Sunday, but fairly quiet on a Sunday, quietish on a Monday and Tuesday, and then gradually building up from there. Now, That's your business model. You need those 20 tables in your restaurant full on a Friday, a Saturday night on a double sitting. Now, if you're allowed to reopen and you are told that social distancing will be the norm and two thirds of your tables therefore have to be removed. So you're no longer a a 20 a 20 table restaurant, you're a seven table restaurant. It could be that even on a double sitting of seven tables on a Friday, Saturday night, you are nowhere near where you need to be to make a profit. And therefore (laughs) your business is in enormous trouble. That is just one example. You can see how economic life, and, and you can apply that same principle to so many spheres, economic life in this country, particularly for small and medium sized business is in huge trouble.
1: I would agree with you entirely. And, um, the great british pub and um, whatever that might have been uh doesn't stand a prayer of fulfilling any kind of social distancing hmm. sitting at tables reduces the pub to non profit it's as simple as that because you can serve with five competent people behind the bar as a pub used to serve one particular pub in uh, my area used to serve on a friday night as friday and a saturday night in the last hour in the region of 15 to 1800 bottles of Budweiser Mm. that's with a staff of four or five yeah with five or six hundred people crammed into the pub Mm. well you couldn't have that number of people in there Mm. you would be talking of having maybe 75 people if you're going to obey any sort of social distancing.
0: Yeah, and I think there's another problem here because there was an article on Mail Online earlier today and they were saying, that they were speculating, I don't believe this is going to happen for one minute, but Boris Johnson could announce on Sunday that pubs with beer gardens will be allowed to open on condition that you stay sat at your table and you are served at your table. However...
1: How long does that go on when people have been drinking? uh,
0: Yeah, this is what I'm coming on to now. By definition, when you are under the influence of alcohol, you lose some of your inhibitions over time. You could easily lose your discipline of social distancing, and you can inadvertently end up closer to people without really realizing it. That is fought with risk, and I really hope it doesn't happen when Boris Johnson makes the announcement on um, on Sunday. Now, another point, and this is something I touched on in the week. Um, now, your views on the future of the rail industry differ from mine somewhat, but I ask you to address the specific point I'm making here rather than turn this into a a big debate about the future of the railways. But there is talk that when, uh, well, if, and I think this is still some time off, if we are told it's safe to go to work again, trains can only be one third full. And this is a similar problem because we've got privatised railways in this country and their business model is based on effect of morning and evening rush hours, and it's more than one hour, it tends to be two or three hours, that all carriages on the trains are full, including with standing room full, if they are then told that you can only be one third full, uh, I, I made a very necessary journey on a train the other day and it was virtually empty, but there were markings on the floor about social distancing. If your train, if you are running a privately run train and your train can only be one third full at morning and evening rush hour, I'm afraid that's your business model gone. It is not possible to make a profit on that. And with that thought in mind, purely in the needs of transportation if we're getting people to and from work, is it necessary therefore to start urgently discussing renationalizing the railways?
1: I think it's necessary to start looking at the viability of railways, whether I they're thought nationalized. You were going to
0: say that. I thought you were going to say that, but if we are going or to have them, need, should they be nationalized?
1: They need far more serious thought hmm. because you cannot run the railway at the expense of people who don't use it i.e the taxpayer as a nationalized structure
0: we do that with all sorts of i don't
1: use railways i'm damned if i can see why i have to pay for them
0: well because i'll tell you why that what we've seen in the last 20 25 years is a massive, and I mean at least doubling, num- increase in the number of people who are using the railways to get to and from work. And the main reason of that, I mean, those, those who favour privatisation say, ah, this is one of the success of privatisation. I don't accept that argument. I think the, re- the main reason far more people are on trains nowadays than were 20, 25 years ago is because, because the way the housing market has gone, people live much, much further away from their place of work.
1: And, and on- there are 36 million cars on the road.
0: There are indeed, but a lot of, uh, quite a lot of people either can't or won't use cars. And if you work, for example, in the centre of Cardiff, or for that matter, I, I live in Cardiff, but this applies to so many other towns and cities, getting your car into the centre of town and putting it in a multi-storey car park will cost you an absolute fortune every day. And that's without taking into account the traffic jams. There has been an active campaign of discouragement of car use into the city centre where I live and in many others up and down the country to the point where it would be uneconomical to work there if you had to commute by car. And that's not taken into account how you, what you do with people who can't or won't drive cars. So the point I'm getting at is it does seem as if you're saying a train can only be a third full, That is gonna prove completely uneconomical, not even in the long term, in the medium term.
1: I agree with you. But trains are uneconomical in any terms and always have been in Britain because the cost of running a railway is putting goods, services and people on and taking goods, services and people off. Mm. You then divide that by the number of miles traveled to work out whether you're profitable and in britain the number of miles traveled is minuscule you can't get on a train and travel from paris to beijing you Mm. are
0: you you wouldn't want to drive there either would you
1: no no i'm not saying you would but it's a matter of Actually, I would quite like to do that. But let's not argue that point. Um, Imagine driving the complete Silk Road. um, Mm. Rather fun. But the problem is that railways without large distances being covered are just not profitable.
0: Well, no, they're not profitable, but if you took everyone who was on a railway and put them in a car, the roads would be even more congested than they are now under normal circumstances to so the point of complete you de- a gridlock.
1: You decentralise your corner so that you don't have commuting for starters. Oh, I,
0: oh, all right. All right. All right. There's a point, right? There's a point. And again, we could talk about the railways in a lot more depth in another podcast. I I, I knew you were going to come up with something like this, which is why I was a bit cautious about asking the question. But to, to bring it back onto where we are with the COVID-19, do you think that a lot of people who are working from home, including the, the company that sorts out my insurance, the lady who's been dealing with my insurance for my business interests for some years, I rang her up to deal with uh, insurance renewal quotes about 10 days ago, and I could hear a baby crying in the background. And I said, oh, you're working from home, are you? And she said, oh, yes. And we had a nice chat about that. And she's looking after a baby, baby in one hand, phone in the other, talking to me. Do you think that after all this time of people working from home, six weeks and counting, many companies may conclude that they actually don't need that much office space anymore?
1: I think they're bloody stupid if they don't Mm. it's an obvious conclusion to come to Mm. it is a very profitable way of working if well managed you don't waste an hour in the morning an hour in the evening with your staff in transit between one place and another Mm. you have a much happier staff because they're at home and they're leading a much more relaxed way of life to do the job and as a result of that probably doing it a damn sight better
0: if you can keep your discipline
1: if you can't then you're in the wrong business aren't you yeah i i
0: can motivation. do it because i've done it for years but i can see why some people would struggle with it
1: it's a matter of motivation hmm yeah and, and it's I can see why some people would struggle with spending an hour commuting to work and an hour getting home every day. Well, this, this is one of the problems by two hours.
0: This is one of the problems with working in London. I mean, having experienced rush hour tube trains many, many times, and also the overground lines linking uh, particularly in the South London area which, which i which 've done you're on you're on the train there is nowhere to sit down you've got your hand on the handrail you've got your head in somebody else's armpit you can imagine if you're doing that getting to work in the morning and from work you're going to be tired and irritated by the time you arrive in work and not in a very good mood because of what you've just gone through and the same going home but this okay i i mean we we I think we did discuss it once in another podcast in another series you and I did some, quite some time ago now. We talked about the revolution in working life in this country. I think this COVID-19 pandemic may be speeding things up quite considerably into the practicalities of working at home in ways that wouldn't have been possible even 10 years ago with the way uh, Skype and Zoom and other things have evolved in that space of time. So I think things are going to move on quite considerably in that sense, and, and it could well be. the change in working habits we are experiencing at the moment is permanent. And the last um, serious aspect of this podcast I want to discuss, situation in the United States. And you and I were both in a completely in agreement. We were scathing of, in our assessment of President Trump and uh, his grossly irresponsible comments uh, over a week ago about injecting disinfectant and all that nonsense, and then he tried to backtrack. The situation in the United States right now is that there are about 30 states, including ones with democratic governors, such as Colorado and Montana, are lifting restrictions, even though some have not met the White House guidelines that were issued in mid-April, recommending proof of a 14-day decline in cases and deaths before such steps are taken. Now, Donald Trump, I've got no sympathy for the guy whatsoever. I think he's an absolute buffoon. He was damned if he did and damned if he didn't, because he had two options. He could either do the responsible thing and crash the economy going into an election, or he could do the, take the opposite approach and allow the economy to reopen and put huge amount of risk a human life, And that is the route he appears to have gone down. And I I really dread to think where America will be five, six weeks from now, unless they backtrack pretty damn quickly myself. And they also, the other thing is, President Trump fears losing the election, because if he is out of office, he loses the protection of office. And there are certain court cases hanging over him that could see him end up in a prison cell. I think these are all factors that are playing at the moment. Your thoughts, please.
1: I cannot disagree with you Um, i think his entire motivation is re-election i think he is strikingly disinterested in the well-being of the people of america i think he is utterly indifferent uh, in terms of almost anything other than his own personal vainglory and his determination to win the election he knows damn well that the only grounds on which he would seriously do that is a because the economy is doing well and i promise him it won't be and b if everybody thinks he has handled this virus well and he is of the opinion that pleasing the vociferous minority of idiots will actually get in the votes he needs. Mm. When I say the vociferous idiots, those who are seen on the streets carrying military style weaponry and automatic weapons protesting at the lockdown and saying they must go back to work yes i can understand why some of them are doing this they have no reliable health service in america not on the basis of free at the point of need for everyone at the time they need yes many people have A health service in America which is paid for as an insurance policy which is paid for frequently by their employer but the second they are not employed the premiums have ended their income has collapsed and how are they going to go on paying the premiums their health service goes out the window and that means that if anyone in that immediate family gets ill, it can, in America, bankrupt the family.
0: Well, yes, all that is true. Uh, and there again, we've seen the buffoon elements with their, uh, their red baseball caps and all, and all the slogan chanting and everything else. But you're also, if you do go to work and, and you're spreading the virus, um, well, you're not much used to, to, to your family uh, seriously and in hospital or, or dead, even, are you? So there's that. There's that side of uh, there's that side of it as well. But it does seem to you be. You have to remember,
1: me- Marcus. There's over two million people in America who live in homes with no running water. Yeah. There's over forty thousand people live in shacks in trailer parks in the outskirts of. Houston alone. Hmm. America is a country that very few people, even people who have been to America, have ever realized the degree of poverty in America.
0: Yes, because most people in Britain who have been to America have generally stuck to the coasts, particularly the east coast, and they've also got their ideas about America from Hollywood movies, The reality of America, and Middle America in particular, is far, far different. My final serious question to you for this week, and you can take a minute to answer this by all means, a very broad question, this. What do you think life in Britain will be like in six months' time?
1: It will either be very different and we have come out of the other end of this pandemic but i don't think that will happen in six months or it will be very different because there will be an awful lot less people around because this can still become an appalling pandemic with appalling Death rates.
0: Well, do you know what I think is going to happen? My view? I think six months from now, life in this country will be much the same as it has been for the last six weeks with similar restrictions on our lives. I think we will try and find ways of adjusting our working habits to the new reality. But I actually think we are going to be stuck with this until a vaccine comes along. And bearing in mind, I say that. Even if a vaccine was created tomorrow, it would have to go through various stages before it be, it was deemed safe and correct. And even if that then happens, scaling it up for the entire there enough for enough to be for the entire population would still take some considerable time. So even under those circumstances, you could be looking at the best part of a year, if, even if it was discovered tomorrow. And whilst I remember on the subject of a vaccine, there are already Some seriously loopy online conspiracy theorists around. I've seen one nutcase saying in recent days that Bill Gates has already developed a vaccine and you must resist it at all costs because this is an attempt to microchip the population. And we've seen how David Icke has had his YouTube and Facebook accounts taken down, uh, rightly so, in my opinion, because people, I'm afraid, the easily manipulated do believe this dangerous rubbish. So, what I would say to people is a little appeal to all our listeners. Yes, there is a place for debate, and I like to think we provide that in this podcast, and by all means, have sensible debates amongst yourselves and consume it in a healthy way. Listen to things like George Galloway's show on Radio Sputnik, for example, if you want to listen to a broad debate about the issues related to COVID-19. But for crying out loud, please do not spread misinformation on your social media accounts. We're just coming up to the anniversary of VE Day. In World War Two. there were posters careless talk costs lives be like dad keep mum these walls have ears there were dangers then about spreading misinformation you never knew who would be listening you never knew the way in which your words could be twisted and misinterpreted the same applies now with social media so please have a little filter in your brain about unreliable information and unreliable people i can tell you through my connections in sports journalism David Icke was completely barking mad even before he announced on Terry Wogan's chat show in 1990 that he was the son of God. So please be very careful with that sort of thing. Well, Greg, on that note, we are coming towards the end, but you know I like to uh, lighten the mood a little. And um, the weather has turned good again, and you've been out in the garden a lot this week, haven't you?
1: Uh, Yes, we've been demolishing our next-door neighbours, who is 83, uh, her... Husband had had dementia for several years and she looked after him at home and he died two years ago. Hmm. They have quite a large garden, but nobody has done anything in the garden for over seven years. So, so it's a jungle rather than a garden. Oh, uh, it was the vegetable area, particularly because it's the other side of a hedge and couldn't be seen, had become. Uh, 75 feet by just over 50 feet of bramble, eight foot deep.
0: It's a pity your old friend Professor David Bellamy died uh, a matter of months ago, because in the old days, I remember when I was a little kid, he used to uh, he used to have great fun making documentaries about this sort of thing, didn't
1: he? Uh, he did indeed, um, and what a super character he was. Oh yeah, um, he treated everyone as a friend mm. he was very um knowledgeable on conservation and natural history and he together with robin page uh who you may recall did the program one man his dog I remember it very well yeah uh, and both of them were driven off of the BBC for having the temerity to know what they were talking about when it came to conservation and having the temerity to be able to explain that climate change was nothing to do with carbon dioxide and absolutely nothing to do with mankind. And if you doubt that, go out. It's been lovely sunny weather today in the UK. Stand in the sun. And if a cloud crosses the sun, which luckily today it hasn't done, well, not where I am, and if a cloud crosses the sun, feel the immediate drop in temperature and then try and convince me that anybody in their right mind can can believe that mankind has an effect on this planet anywhere near influencing our local star.
0: Well... You talk about, uh, rightly, you talk about David Bellamy, his BBC career coming to an end for daring to question the climate change agenda. Robin Page, who may even be listening to this podcast, I know he's a friend of yours as well, Um, he also, his BBC career came to an end. He didn't only do One Man and His Dog, he did other rural programmes for the BBC, but it doesn't stop there. Another one was um, Zoe Ball, the presenter of the Radio 2 Breakfast Show. Her father, Johnny Ball, used to do lots of children's science programmes he also questioned the agenda, uh, the, the man-made climate change agenda. His BBC ke- career came to an end. And the other one was um, Julian Pettifer. Now, you might remember Julian from television. He used to present for ITV, the game show Busman's Holiday, but he did a lot of more serious documentaries for Radio 4. His BBC career was also brought to an end because he dared to question the man-made climate change agenda. But it's, it was nice that to reminisce about a, a great character like uh, Professor David Bellamy. He was... Uh, I think one of his great talents, yes, he was was also a great uh, Eurosceptic, particularly in later life. But he was a great communicator. He was the sort of person who could convey his ideas and his thoughts for both an adult and a child audience. And they could both be entertained by his programs. And that is a very rare gift. And yes, I know he'd been very ill in the final years of his life, but uh, he he is much missed. And um, there are, you go on YouTube, there's a number of children's songs he released many, many years ago which I think even today's children would find quite entertaining, this one about a brontosaurus, for example. But anyway, Greg, that brings us towards the end of our time. My thanks as always to Greg. My thanks to you for listening. Do please stay safe and follow the official guidelines, respect social distancing, stay at home, protect the NHS, protect one another, and we'll see you again next week.